discussion and controversy about what is taking place here. Again, there's no controversy about the fact that it was the hardening, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart that is causing him to refuse to listen to the word of the Lord. What is the controversy is who or what is causing it to be hard, right? Much discussion and conversation in the church about the source of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Well, let's simplify it if we will, even if our minds uh, can't seem to grasp it. It's very simple. Fourteen times there is an explicit reference to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart in these ten plagues. Fourteen times. Six of the fourteen times, it is clear as day. It is the Lord that is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. He said it there, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then again, the references say, this is what happened. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The sixth plague, right? Where God sent upon man and beast the boils. Uh, Verse, uh, I think it's chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. The eighth plague of the locusts. Right? The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. And in the plague of darkness, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is a truth that we need just to live with and let it set in. The Lord intentionally hardened the heart of Pharaoh. That's what the text proclaims. And yet, while we kind of get uncomfortable in our seats about God interfering with us, we have to come to grips with this reality. That at the very same time, without jeopardizing the first truth, that the Lord intentionally hardened the heart of Pharaoh, we see this, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So we see, why isn't he... listening to the word of the Lord. Well, the Lord is hardening his heart. And at the very same time, guess what? He's hardening his heart. In some other occasions, you'll just get a simple statement like, his heart was hard. Or the Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Right? A general statement about what is causing his refusal. See, we don't like two truths in tension. We don't like that. We want one or the other. But these two realities are not mutually exclusive, although our brain doesn't seem to perfectly grasp it. We get uncomfortable. But the truth is, is that the Lord is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart, and at the same time, Pharaoh's own sin is there to harden his own heart, all of which is serving the Lord's promises and His purposes to redeem His people. Right? That's what this is all about. And we see that pattern being set. In the frogs and the flies, again, is Pharaoh hardening his heart. I think Paul in Romans 9 answers our questions. Talks to us about our confusion. He actually directly talks about this moment where God is hardening 
the heart of Pharaoh. Paul in this chapter is grieved. He's he's upset that, that Israel is not receiving Christ as the Messiah. That oh, they had the word of God given to them. They have the law. They still, uh, they rejected him. He's grieving over it. And yet in verse 14 we see, uh, he says this uh, in recognition of that. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, he says. For I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's God. And then verse 19 says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? It's not fair. How can he still hold us accountable if he's sovereign in these matters? He says, for who can resist his will? Paul says this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. The bottom line is this. We look at the truth that the Lord is intentionally hardening the heart of Pharaoh for his sovereign purposes according to his will. And at the very same time, because of Pharaoh's sin that he is responsible for, he's hardening his own heart. And in the midst of trying to figure that out and asking all the questions based on our view of God and what we believe He has a right to and does not have a right to, we start to ask questions. And Paul just says, who are you, O man of God? Or who are you, uh, uh, O man, to answer back to God? Let's not get lost in the tension and pick one or the other. This is a pattern in this book of Exodus and in these plagues. The the next thing is the Lord in these plagues makes a sharp distinction between Egypt, the people he is judging, and Israel, the people he is saving. There is a difference. There's a divine distinction between Israel and Egypt, right? There is, uh, he talks about it here. I'll give you some examples. During the flies, the livestock, and the threat of the firstborn, you hear these words. But on that day, verse 22 of chapter 8, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall, flies shall be there. Verse 4 of chapter 9, The Lord made a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And in the last plague i think this is a powerful image the lord says not a dog shall growl against any of the people of israel either man or beast that you may know that the lord makes a what distinction between the people of israel i'm sorry between egypt and israel we talk about that often right There is a difference, a substantive difference based on God's grace and based on God's spirit that lives inside of us. We are a people that are different. We live different. We're not the same. There's a setting apart. There's a division. And to be clear, the thing that makes the difference is 
the work and the choice of God. It's not anything better in and of ourselves. But let's not miss it. That God is making a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And last but not least, 7.5, we see this. Why is he doing that, right? The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He's reinforcing constantly his purpose. Why is he doing all of this? Why through ten plagues? Why hardening the heart of Pharaoh? Why, why saving a people from slavery? Why through this just odd catastrophic event because this in his sovereignty is the way by which he decides reveals who he is and you see that reinforced in each and every time Uh, six times there is that you may know that there is none like the lord our god in the plague of the frogs in the hell for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. And I love the locust one where there's a little bit of a different nuance where God says he is, he, that, that He's doing all this that you may tell your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. See, it's not just that Egypt would know, but it's that Israel would have zero ambiguity about the identity of their God. That they would tell their grandkids someday, this is what Yahweh did, this is who Yahweh is. Generational discipleship takes place, right? So again, to recap, you see it right here. Verses 1 and 2, the Lord uses Moses and Aaron. Verse 3, the Lord is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is hardening his own heart in the face of multiple signs and catastrophic plagues. We see that that, uh, Pharaoh doesn't listen. We see the distinction. I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt. But I'm going to treat my hosts, my people, the people of Israel, very differently. And all of this, verse 5, is that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's really the pattern we see repeated time and time again. I'm sure as you reviewed this material prior or have read it before, you may even see some other things that are repeated in a survey of this passage, surely these things are central. And I think that final one really gives us insight into really what's going on with this forest. What is God doing? You may answer the question and say, He's redeeming His people. He's saving them. He's bringing them out of slavery. Guess what? Yes, He is. Someone say amen. Amen. Right? He's saving his people. That's what he's doing. But what I really see in the plagues is the revelation of Yahweh. He's revealing himself through judgment, through salvation. 
And he's reinforcing that constantly. So in these plagues, we're confronted and at the same time comforted by who the Lord is. And I want to transition from the pattern to say the pattern in the plagues reveals the Lord of the plagues. Write that one down. The pattern in the plagues is revealing to us the Lord of the plagues. Some of you here today may not really know God or maybe crave more knowledge of Him. You say, tell me what God is like. Show me and give me assurance about the Lord. Tell me who He is. You say you know Him, Mike. Who is this Lord? And so if you're wondering... if you. Your image of God is it needs to be shaped tonight. Let it be shaped here, now, from the plagues, in the pattern we see. The Lord is not keeping Himself at a distance. When we engage the Scriptures, we see that He is revealing Himself to the world so that we know Him. Not just know about Him, but literally know who He is. And allow the objective reality about who He is infiltrate and invade our subjective experience. This is who He is. Let's let that set in, if you will. So there's five things that I believe this section of Scripture really reveals to us about the nature of Yahweh, the, the person of our Lord. These pattern, or this pattern in these plagues that's really what we see taking place. Again, it's the forest view. There's so much more. But I'm going from the forest view. The first image that comes to my mind when I take a look at this seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 1 through 11.10, you look at these five chapters, and you say, what is being revealed about the Lord in these chapters? I get the picture of a conductor. And I'm no musician, and you all know that, okay? But I get the image of the conductor, the human, uh, human affairs, history. He is conducting. He's in charge. Situations, circumstances. The Lord is indeed calling the shots and conducting the affairs of humanity. Not Pharaoh. Not the gods of Egypt. Yahweh, the Lord, is indeed sovereign over history. We play His song. We obey His command. He's in charge of everything. And yet we see sin, and we recognize that God is not the author of sin, but He is the conductor that is even sovereign over sin. Sin has no power over the living God. God's in charge. And He's conducting these events to save His people, to judge Israel in the sole purpose of revealing Himself to the world. The song is being played. This is who I am. Not only that, I believe this pattern 
reveals to us that the Lord is unparalleled in His power. Growing up as a kid, I don't know what this says about our crazy family, but we uh, had a season of being infatuated with heavyweight boxing. And if you're in the mid-80s, mid-90s, and you uh, did, uh, you know, hook yourself up with a little bit of pleasure from culture, you watched boxing, and you loved, you know, Mike Tyson, right? And I'll never forget a statement. I was reading this, and I thought, this reminds me of an interview that, you know, some, some interviewer had with Mike Tyson, in that the, the, the statement that he made when he was the undefeated, heavyweight, undisputed champion of the world. As we said, I am the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And he made that statement. And that's kind of what I see God doing here. In the face of the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful country, nation, in the face of gods that seem to give them that power, he says, no, I'm the undisputed heavyweight champion of the universe. It's absolute and unchanging. None of you stand a chance at defeating me. He is powerful, and no one can shake a stick at him. That's our God. He's unparalleled in power. Now, if you know the story of Mike Tyson, that becomes a very bad illustration. What really what we see about Mike Tyson more puts on display Pharaoh, doesn't he? The assumption that he is that. And in his pride and arrogance, we saw Mike Tyson come crumbling down and actually become an absolute mess. That's what's happening to Pharaoh. That no human can claim that. No human can say they are the undisputed, heavyweight champion of anything. But it is a sole right and title for Yahweh, the Lord. He is powerful. He is unparalleled in power over Pharaoh. He is unparalleled in power over Egypt and its gods. Don't miss that. Some would argue that the the, the Nile uh, was a symbol of uh, Egyptian deity, the source of life. The frogs were, again, symbols of deity. The flies, the the livestock uh, worshipped and adored. And, and, and light and darkness, that Pharaoh was light. All these things, really, what you see is that God's pouring out these judgments and plagues in such a way to really confront Egyptian deity and said, no, you may think that is God, but I am. You may think that has power and authority, but really, I'm in charge of all that. I tell the frogs to go, and they go. He's unparalleled in power. Over Pharaoh, over the Egyptian gods, and he's in power over creation. I read how just he whistles, he speaks, he murmurs in his breath, he thinks, and it just happens. Creation obeys the voice of the Lord. It's like Jesus, right? In the midst of the storm, and we're all freaking out. We're going to die, Jesus, don't you care? And he just says, shh, in immediate peace. The Lord is powerful over creation. So we see that Yahweh, the Lord, is what? He's sovereign over history, and He's unparalleled in power. And for us, it 
both confronts us and comforts us because on the one hand, uh, some of us here, uh, uh, it confronts because we recognize that we're a people that just by nature like to swim upstream like Pharaoh. We see the sovereignty of God. It's flowing like a mighty rushing river and in our sin and in our name, we want to swim the other way. We want to push back against the sovereignty of God in life's decisions and in relationships. We don't like authority. We don't like someone to have absolute sovereignty over our lives. And yet for so many of us who recognize and humbly admit that we need authority, we need direction, we need guidance, we need someone to control us, guess what? We just need to let the river of God take us where it will according to His will, right? Not because we're going to swim upstream, but because we're submitting and relying upon His sovereignty. We need to submit to this God. Bend the knee. Submit our will to His and stop swimming upstream. I think we see two things as well. Our Lord is holy in His person and our Lord is just in His wrath. The distinction is made between God and Egyptian God. The distinction is made between God's people and the people of Egypt. What does that mean? I think what we see, although not explicitly, is that our God is holy in the plagues. He's set apart. He's other. He's different. He's transcendent. He's above us and beyond us. Right? Our God is holy. Not explicitly said anywhere. And our God is just in His wrath. You see, we look at this and we say, wow, God would literally wreak havoc on a civilization? He would send all these catastrophic plagues and ruin the, take away their, their life source? Right? Put boils on their bodies? Infect their water? Kill their food? As if the hell wasn't enough, send locusts to eat whatever leaf was remaining. God would do that? So begin to question God. Like, is this fair? Is this loving? Is this just? But I think we need to see that Pharaoh and the people of Egypt are sinful people. A wicked Sinful, rebellious, God-dishonoring people. And that the Lord, regardless of nature, the Lord always reserves the right at any moment to unleash His fury on anything and all that is evil. We love justice, right? It's like, woo Justice, man. Social justice. This is the God of justice who saves through judgment. His judgment. We have no right to question that. Unless the question is, why have you not judged me, Lord? Right? The grace is highlighted too, isn't it? 
the distinction. Again, Israel's not any better except for covenant promise, except for the outpouring of God's grace. Right? The only question we really need to ask about the righteous fury of God is why have I not received it? And we know the answer to that. Because of His kindness that leads us to repentance. Because of Jesus who took on all of God's fury and wrath when He bore our sins on the tree. He saves through judgment. And it is just. He is the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. He's both and. That's our God. At one point, Moses tells Pharaoh, you're still exalting yourself against my people and, I will not let, and you will not let them go. Moses said again at another point, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. And then of course, chapter 10, verse 3. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? This is a wicked thing, friends. Pride. Sin. The hardening of our heart is a wicked thing. So how do we respond to one who is, what? Holy and just. Well, I think for one, we need to have a fear and an awe before the holy God. Jesus is not your homeboy. Amen? He is a God to be feared. He's a God of fury and wrath, and it's just. And it's good news that He is. So we respond to that God with fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I do think as well that when we look at the way in which Pharaoh and the Egyptians deal with their sin, refusing to humble themselves, I think the opposite is encouraged of us, that we humbly confess our sin and we repent and turn from it and run into the gracious, strong arms of Jesus. Don't deal with your sin by pretending it's not real. Repent and run into the arms of Jesus, who is the Lord. Right? The pattern in the plagues is revealing the person of the plagues. I want you to see that. And I want to end with this, and I think it comes all together, what's really being revealed. You know, I think about the month of August. I get really excited in August, and it has nothing to do with the fall season, unless, of course, you're talking about football. Football is an exciting time for me, okay? So I get real excited. You know me. Like, I'm just, woo, get really excited about things. Well, here's the deal. I always text a buddy of mine who's a fellow Steelers fan, and it usually goes something like this. Hey, did you see the Steelers schedule? Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. 
hey, let's go see October whatever. They're playing on a Thursday night in Baltimore, and we could get tickets, and I'm looking at the stuff up. Woo! Get all excited. Let's do it. And at first a uh, couple years I did that, my friend was like, you know, yeah, let's do it. I'm in. Let me talk to the wife, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, they would go back to their wife, and then, so are we in? And then I go, hey, Doreen, uh, what do you think? I'm going to go down to Baltimore and watch the Steelers game. And, uh, you know, I'll be, just be gone for a night. Be about 200 bucks for a ticket, but it's the Steelers. And she's like, no, you can't go. <laughs> you don't have the time, you don't have the money. What, what do you think we're doing here? I'm like, you're right. You're right. You're right. And so I text my buddy back, dude, I'm sorry, man. I really wanted to go. I was so in, but I can't make it. <laughs> and so over the years, this friend, dealing with all my exciting opportunity texts, has said, is this a commitment or is this a maze commitment? <laughs> Some of you have fallen victim of these things. I do apologize, but it will happen again. <laughs> I do not repent, but I do apologize. May's commitment. Faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word. He gives no May's commitment. He gives a commitment and he follows through in every detail. I look at chapter 11, and that's really what I see Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague, and I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. Again, I know we're still in the waiting for fulfillment, but please hear that word. It's going down. I will, at the conclusion of these nine plagues, let's be clear about what's about to happen. He will let you go. I said it, it's going to happen. And then again, verse 10, you say, maybe I'm reading into it. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of this land. Again, we have not yet entered into the Passover, where the literal backbreaking of Pharaoh takes place. It's not sugarcoat it. Not seen that, but what we see in verse 10 is, again, going back to the pattern of seven. Moses and Aaron are going to do this, right? Pharaoh's going to do this, then I'm going to do this, and it's all because I want to reveal myself. Look at verse 10 tells me that these things happened, right? The, the, the objective truth that this is what I'm going to do, the promise, the word of God went forth, and guess what? It entered into subjective experience. It happened. God's faithful to his word. That's all I see. God's faithful to his word. So how do we respond to a faithful God? Well, surely we trust him, don't we? Over every aspect of our lives. If he's capable of redeeming a people out of slavery, just through some, a couple of servants who say, let them go, and he's able to control all of creation towards that end and pour out catastrophic plagues of judgment on a nation, the most powerful nation in the world, can't we trust him with the small things, the minutia of life? Can't we rely upon him? I think so. He's faithful. That's what we see here. The plagues tell us that he's faithful to his word. 
This is a God that is really to be known, but ultimately to be worshipped through submission, through surrender. Some of us are confronted and comforted to wave the white flag over our lives and say, I quit. I surrender. I can't do it on my own anymore. I give myself to you. I see who you are. I know what you're capable of in your unparalleled power. I see that you're the conductor, the sovereign one over all of history. I see that. You're holy. You're just. And you're faithful. I quit. And I give myself to you. That's really worship, isn't it? Resigning to be pretty much nothing apart from God and giving all of yourself to Him. Trust, worship. The pattern in the plagues reveals the Lord of the plagues. I hope you see Him. And I hope the truth of who He is is not just something we see and therefore can talk about and have debate about, but something that we can see and it can enter and anchor into the deepest part of who we are and impact every decision, every relationship, every dollar in our pocket. Literally, our lives are radically transformed by the knowledge of who He is. One could argue that it would be better to walk through these plagues slowly. Touche. Touche. But I think there is value in seeing the plagues in the context of what they are all about. God revealing Himself through salvation and through judgment. The pattern in the plagues reveal the Lord of the plagues. Let's pray. Lord, We have scratched the surface here tonight. In many ways we have done justice to your text, to your word, to your revelation. In other ways, we have done it injustice. There's so much more richness there to be unearthed. But I pray that you take our time here tonight. And may we, by your Spirit, see who you are. And love you, worship you, treasure you, surrender all that we are to who you are. To you be the glory, we pray. Amen.